Welcome to The Experts Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss, and thank you for listening. There is little doubt that a definite and strong association exists between many mood states and the irritable bowel syndrome, so it's incumbent upon us to take a closer look at the irritable bowel syndrome. Joining us today to do so is Dr. Robert Silber, a gastroenterologist from Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Dr. Silber, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure, Abby. Now, as we always must say... Any and all clinical decisions must be the individualized product of a doctor and patient relationship. Okay, that being said, I can remember reading that upwards of 40 or 50% of all irritable bowel syndromes are associated with some sort of emotional problem. And I've also read, although I don't know how accurate the statistics are, but it seems to be that the prevalence is about 12% of the population. So let's begin by talking about it from a general point of view, and then most interestingly from a GI doctor's point of view. What is IBS and how does it present? Strictly speaking, is a chronic, what we call functional gastrointestinal disorder, and there's some key components to it. First one being a patient who has recurring abdominal pain or discomfort at least three days a month for at least three months. Number two, there is some type of altered bowel habits associated with the abdominal discomfort, and this can include a change in stool frequency and or consistency. For example, at least more than three stools a day or less than three stools a week is the spectrum. The stools may be pellet and hard or they can be loose with mucus. It's not uncommon for the patients to complain of the urge to go a feeling that they don't completely empty their colon, also straining. And usually the discomfort is decreased or even eliminated by having a bowel movement. Two additional symptoms, they're not mandatory but frequently associated, are bloating and flatulence, a lot of gas. Right now there's no currently identifiable structural or biochemical abnormality that we can put our finger on. That's an interesting point. I guess people wonder, is it an infectious disease process? Is it an immunologic problem? Where does it come from? Well, and that's a good question, and we don't have the answers. There's a lot of speculation. Multiple possible etiologies have been described, and the pathophysiology tends to be overlapping. And one, I think a clear factor is some type of altered intestinal motility. Why that happens, there's different opinions, but in some people, particularly the subtype of diarrhea, predominant irritable bowel, their transit time is accelerated. Those, the subtype of constipation, predominant irritable bowel, their transit time is very slow. And then we have the mixed subtype where they can alternate between diarrhea and constipation. There's also described the phenomenon of visceral hypersensitivity where normal things that go on inside the gut, For example, there's a certain amount of pressure inside the GI tract. Food, at least, that starts in the stomach and then ends up being waste in the colon. These are normal physiologic phenomena, but in patients with irritable bowel, these normal phenomena are exaggerated. There also is described quite often problems with the brain-gut axis, and it's clear that the central nervous system plays a role in processing and dealing with the signals it receives from the GI nervous system. And if there's abnormalities in the central nervous system on how it processes those signals can lead to symptoms. And conversely, if something's going on within the central nervous system, this can generate its postulated abnormal signals that then go to the GI nervous system that can lead to alterations. 
I was at a recent lecture stating that as many as 65% of patients who we diagnose with irritable bowel, and, and, I, and I think this corresponds with my practice, have some type of psychiatric comorbidity, anxiety, quite often depression, somatization, and it's postulated. And some have done some studies that certainly go beyond my understanding, but it even looked at how some of these psychological stresses can lead to identifiable abnormalities, neurochemical, that obviously affect the GI tract, can at least, if not lead to, exacerbate the GI symptoms, and then a vicious cycle has been shown to occur. Those symptoms, in turn, can make the underlying psychiatric illness even worse. There's definitely some type of connection in many patients. So what do you do? Patient comes to you and they say, doctor, I'm having whatever particular set of symptoms that they are complaining about. How do you go about trying to decide if this is something that is treated primarily by you? When do you refer for psychiatric or psychological counseling or intervention? Give me a sense of how do you approach it? Well, I first tell my patients, since we don't have any single test, even an endoscopy, an x-ray, blood test, there's no test I have right now that can make the diagnosis. So it is a diagnosis as I approach the patient that I make after I've reasonably excluded other causes. Now, and again, what also makes this more difficult is that quite often there's an overlap between patients with irritable bowel and those with other gastrointestinal orders that we would treat differently. So the history is very important. Is there some clear association with gluten or with lactose or fructose, which can make one then think that there may be a celiac sprue? Have they been camping and maybe have picked up a parasite such as Giardia? So I take a history, which includes family history, if there's a family history of colon cancer, for example, or inflammatory bowel disease such as Crohn's, or a family history of celiac sprue, then that heightens my suspicion. Maybe it's not irritable bowel syndrome. There are what we like to call alarm symptoms. So when I'm taking the history, some symptoms that make me think I better spend a little more time looking for other causes would include if a person shows up and they've lost 10 pounds because of the three, four months of cramping and, say, diarrhea, if they have recurring fevers. Rectal bleeding, unless it's hemorrhoidal, but rectal bleeding, you have to at least start thinking that there's something else going on. If the patient's 60 and is sent to me because of change in bowel frequency even going on for three months, I've got to at least be prepared to think outside the box. And, and as someone who has recent onset, very progressive GI symptoms. These are alarm symptoms that when I'm taking the history, I have to at least start to contemplate pursuing some additional diagnostic tests, which very often don't have to be extensive if a person presents the right age, typical symptoms and no alarm symptoms. So we start with the history. You do a physical exam. Do I feel a mass? I do a rectal exam. Is there blood in the stool? Which makes me think, could there be something else going on? And then we do tailor. Do we take the history, see what a referring family doctor has done? Then I make the decision, all right, what tests do I feel need to be done before I conclude that the patient has irritable bowel? And those tests can range from just collecting one or two stools. If I suspect that we might be dealing with a parasite, I might do some blood tests, making sure the patient's not anemic, checking their thyroid status. I might do a blood test, which is available to screen for celiac sprue. And actually, 
not all gastroenterologists, but many, we can do breath testing. That's non-invasive. Patients can do this at home, and we can do breath testing to see if they may have small bowel bacterial overgrowth. Do they have lactose intolerance? Do they have fructose intolerance, which can mimic the symptoms of irritable bowel, particularly when there's diarrhea as the primary symptom I might do a colonoscopy, and even if I don't see anything, there is a diagnosis called microscopic colitis, but if you take biopsies, you will see abnormalities, and that diagnosis of microscopic colitis is amenable to certain treatments, and again, that's different than someone who has bowel syndrome. We have the statistic that 65%, approximately 65% of folks with irritable bowel syndrome have some emotional problem. Clearly, we have to be very careful. We don't too immediately label them as basically having a manifestation of a psychiatric problem. We could miss a lot of very important pathology. That's right. Just about all the patients I see are referred by their family doctor who may have already tried some pharmacotherapy, usually not psychotherapy in my experience. But I think you're absolutely right. And the way in my practice, the way I approach the patient who has, even if they're compatible, symptoms of irritable bowel and they've not had some type of workup and depending upon their age, I mean, my approach is to exclude any organic, non-psychiatric primary cause first. When I am comfortable that I've reasonably excluded, say, non-psychiatric issues, I then embark upon treatment, some of which I feel very comfortable based upon my knowledge and experience. And then sometimes I involve, if it's not the family doctor or other specialists, such as a psychiatrist, to have a team approach in dealing with that patient in whom I made the diagnosis of irritable bowel, where I feel psychiatric comorbidity is very important. Drug psychotherapy, I get partners in that. Is it more common in women than men? Do you see them in different subgroups? Do we have enough data about that? The one data that does stand out is the greater prevalence among women. And actually, the prevalence may be three to four times higher in women than men. In terms of other disease states other than with psychiatric, I'm not aware that if you have this disease, you're more apt to have irritable bowel. Now, you may have other diseases like diabetes mellitus that can predispose you to, say, bacterial overgrowth, but I separate that from true irritable bowel syndrome. One of the things that people find fascinating, I find fascinating, is the relationship between the mind, the emotions, and the gut. And I know in school we used to talk about whether it starts in the brain and goes down to the gut, so we used to call it a downward displacement, or it starts in the gut and goes up to the brain, an upward displacement. It leads to the question that has to be asked, what can we do about irritable bowel syndrome? What, what are some of the standard treatments? Are there pharmacologic treatments that you use, and what's the success rate? Well, again, just like in terms of approaching the patient I see where I'm asked to make the diagnosis, we have to tailor our treatment based upon the individual. And as I thought about this to simplify it, our treatment is clearly influenced by the predominant symptom or symptoms. Is their main complaint diarrhea? Is their main complaint constipation? How severe are their symptoms that clearly impacts how quickly I might go to a certain form of treatment as opposed to something simpler. And then if there are identifiable coexisting problems that I feel could be impacting their irritable bowel, 
those have to be addressed. If not by me, I'll get others involved. But in terms of the therapy, drug therapy, what I would call the simple ones, if their main symptom is constipation, laxatives. Now, we don't want to get people with mineral oil and enemas, those that are stimulating and can be addicting, something as simple as a stool softener to milk of magnesia to something like Miralax. Fiber, fiber supplements in patients who primarily have constipation, but paradoxically, sometimes patients with mild diarrhea or if they have alternating back and forth diarrhea and constipation might have an improvement in their symptoms from fiber supplements. But fiber doesn't help everyone with constipation urobolin. There's a subgroup of those patients I have found actually their constipation gets worse. There are some medications that don't act on the central nervous system that can help to promote GI motility than in those who have primarily diarrhea. Sometimes you'll use a quick-acting agent now and then, such as Imodium or Lomodal. In my training and early on, very frequently, and still I, I use quite a bit in patients with diarrhea, predominant irritable bowel with associated cramping, anticholinergic or antispasmodic drugs such as Bentol or Levson. Sometimes, even if we do not document small bowel bacterial overgrowth, some people have reported empirically improvement in symptoms by a course of antibiotics. One of non-absorbable antibiotics called rifaximin. My practice, I like to at least if I can diagnose small bowel bacterial overgrowth, which is a cause of their irritable symptoms, I like to have that data before I give them an antibiotic. But some gastroenterologists might empirically try an antibiotic to see if their symptoms improve. And then part of the drug therapy, and I would certainly be remiss even though I don't get into this that much, I defer to others, would be the central acting drug that, for example, you would use, although we tend to use like the tricyclic antidepressants in relatively lower doses than is used for primary psychiatric illnesses, but whether it be amitriptyline, amipramine, particularly when those patients have diarrhea as a predominant feature and we feel psychiatric comorbidity. Sometimes when there is a little more of a constipation component, which amitriptyline or amipramine, for example, has been shown to make the constipation worse, sometimes selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, when there's some psychiatric, psychological major component, can help people with irritable bowel, especially if they have some constipation aspect. So, I mean, in terms of the drugs, someone has mild symptoms, I might just push diet. Now, there's also what I would characterize as the non-drug therapy, and that would, again, diet, exercise, probiotics are being talked about and tried more often. A probiotic, it's live organisms, which when you take enough of it, leads to some health benefit. We can get this in certain yogurt products, but probiotics sometimes will work. I don't know the mechanism. It may go back to there's some people with irritable bowel in whom there's speculated to be some abnormality in the bacterial population of their GI tract. And then there's prebiotic that some gastroenterologists are using sometimes with benefit. And the prebiotic are non-digestible but fermentable foods that lead to a stimulation or growth of microorganisms inside the GI tract, which in turn lead to some health benefits. So it's like the prebiotics, dietary mainly, can act like then probiotics. Some have talked about in getting into newer, again, experimental treatments, but acupuncture, some feel can have some benefit in some patients. Yoga, some have tried. I have an herbal products like peppermint oil, 
And then, and, and what really stood out from Dr. Lori Kiefer, she's a associate professor of medicine and behavioral science at Northwestern. She has a PhD. She presented data, especially for irritable bowel patients with moderate to severe symptoms, because, you know, they're a challenge. They're, they're a challenge for me and other gastroenterologists. We may try diet, we may try some drug therapy, but we often still fall short of making that patient's life better so they can function better. One thing she stressed was early referral to a psychologist, particularly in those patients where you've tried traditional things and they're not working. But she talked about interpersonal psychotherapy, relaxation-based therapies, gut-directed hypnotherapy, cognitive behavior therapies, and I guess what struck me and what will influence me is to open my mind probably sooner than I previously have to get someone more qualified than I to looking at the psychological and psychiatric aspects, maybe sooner than later, particularly in those patients who have more severe problems and I've excluded organic causes. That's the take-home message. We need to do a very thorough search to make sure there isn't a medical problem that can be fixed, but too many times, and I've seen it in my practice, I've often asked patients, well, what took you so long to get here? And there was the stigma against the psychiatric involvement or perhaps the insurance problems of not being able to afford psychiatric involvements and so on and so on. I believe that what you've also emphasized is that there is such an interplay and we need to recognize that we cannot say that irritable bowel is a distinct entity separate from psychiatric issues and vice versa. Robert Silber is a gastroenterologist in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, and he's been good enough to take us on a brief overview of the issues and questions and challenges of dealing with someone who presents with symptoms of irritable bowel syndrome. Dr. Silber, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, my, my pleasure.